Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these. Yes, that's right. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who come down, so those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By by myself I can do nothing. I can judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. It always intrigues me to see the way that uh, other religions in our world are willing to find a place for Jesus in what they believe. When it comes to some of the major religions in the world, most of them seem to have some kind of a place for Jesus. I mean, in Islam, for example, they believe in his miraculous birth, they believe that he performed miracles and healed people, they believe that he is coming again before the end of the world, they believe that Jesus was a prophet sent by God. In fact, they're even willing to say that Jesus was a son of God. I'm not sure if you remember these billboards that were doing the rounds in Sydney for quite a while. Uh, they were wanting to claim, Muslims were wanting to claim Jesus as one of theirs, as part of what it is that they believe. Jesus also holds a place of sorts in Hinduism. Uh, they think, there are some who think that he is the incarnation of the Lord Krishna. Uh, there are some who believe that after his resurrection from the dead, that he actually travelled to Tibet and to Kashmir and possibly even to India. There are branches of Buddhism that want to claim that they were developed from teachings of Jesus when he made that visit to Kashmir and Tibet. 
But despite all of those areas where people might agree with the teaching of Jesus, there's one sticking point, there's one detail that cannot be accepted by those other religions. There is one point at which they draw the line. They can't accept the idea that Jesus is God. They're happy to say that Jesus is important. They're happy to say that Jesus taught great things. They're even happy to say that Jesus did great things. But they're not willing to recognise that he is God. Now we're looking at the passage in the Bible today where I think Jesus most boldly makes that claim. That he is not just the son of God, but he is in fact God. And he points out what the implications of that claim will be. The section begins with two miracles. The first one is actually at the end of chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, chapter 4 and verse 43 is where we hear about that first miracle, the one that Mike told us about in the kids' talk. A father has come to Jesus, his son is about to die and the father knows that he is powerless to do anything about it. He can't help his son but he knows that Jesus can. So he has travelled this extraordinary distance just to come to see Jesus and it's a rather unusual miracle. The whole thing happens without any fanfare. It was kind of a remote healing Jesus doesn't even see this child who is some distance away. And have a look at the miracle itself. Verse 49 of chapter 4. The royal official said, Come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. That's it. That's the miracle right there. And John says that, This is actually the second sign. John gives us seven signs that Jesus performed and this is one of them. I think I'd want something a little bit more dramatic. I think I want something with a little bit more action, you know, with Jesus actually placing his hand on someone, not just saying, Nick off home, your son's going to be okay. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just the way that my cynical mind works, but if I was there in amongst the crowd who heard Jesus say this in response to what this man has said, I'd be thinking, well, has there really been a miracle? I mean, it's just words. I mean, what proof is there that the child has been healed? If you heard later that the child had been healed, I reckon I'd be likely to say, well, that's just a coincidence that that happened. They didn't see Jesus do anything. Jesus didn't get anything, didn't touch the child, wasn't anywhere near the child. But I think that this detail in verse 52 is actually included for the cynics like me. While the man's heading home, servants come out to meet him, to tell him that his son is okay. And when he inquired as to the time, verse 52, his son got better. They said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said, your son will live. But that's not actually the most important part. The most important part was the part that Mike pointed out in the talk. Go back to verse 50. Because in response to Jesus saying, your son will live, this is what we read. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. He believed Jesus. He trusted Jesus. Jesus said it and he believed it. In some ways, that's the very definition of faith right there, isn't it? 
Well, if the first miracle is a heartwarming story about a child's life being saved, then the second miracle is actually a frustrating story about the nitpicking legalism of the religious leaders. It all starts quite well. Jesus has gone to a pool that's called the Sheep's Gate and we're told that there is a man there, an invalid man, who is unable to walk, hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. Now, we don't know much about this pool other than what we read here. Archaeologists have found it and it fits the description that we're actually given here. But apparently disabled people would go to this pool in the hope of being healed. The legend was that from time to time an angel would come down and stir the waters and if you could be the first one in the waters when the waters got stirred, then you would be healed. All seems a little bit hit and miss for me. I mean, you have to be there when the waters get stirred and second, you have to be the first person into the water after the waters do get stirred. whole thing seems a little bit superstitious. No guarantee that you'll be healed, but if you're there at the right, right place at the right time, maybe you could be healed. And Jesus speaks to this man who's been lying there. I mean, the 38 years is the important part here. When Jesus saw him, chapter 5, verse 6, Lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, the answer to that is pretty obvious. He's lying there beside the pool and has been for some considerable number of years. And the man points out what he sees as being his impediment to getting well. He says this in verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Now again, I want you to notice that this miracle actually happens without any fuss, no fanfare. There doesn't even seem to be a crowd watching. It's just Jesus and a conversation with this man. No waiting for the angels to stir the waters, no hoping you can be the first one into the water. Jesus just speaks to the man and he's healed, verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once he was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. He picks up his mat and he walks out. But the purpose of recording this event isn't for the miracle. I mean, it's, it does show us Jesus' great power and authority, but that's not why we have it. Oh, no, 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 no. Why we have this story is for the events that follow. This was the catalyst for probably Jesus' major confrontation with the religious leaders. In what can only be described as an absolute masterstroke of pettiness and legalism, the religious leaders want to rebuke this man for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Let's take the whole picture in here. 38 years he has been unable to walk. Now he can walk and the religious leaders are angry with him because he is carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now, you can have a look through your Old Testament if you like, but I'll cut to the chase. There is no law against carrying your mat on the Sabbath. It's not in there. You won't find it in the pages of the Old Testament. The Sabbath said that you were not allowed to work, but it doesn't say anything about carrying mats, especially disabled people carrying their old mats. But putting all of that aside, this is a pretty breathtaking lack of compassion, isn't it? I mean, surely they would have recognised this guy. 38 years he's been hanging around at this pool hoping to be healed. 
and they could care less that he is now able to walk. They're more concerned about him carrying his mat. Carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Seriously? But the religious leaders are also concerned that Jesus has been working on the Sabbath. Not to mention encouraging people to carry their mats on the Sabbath, which is bad enough in itself. I mean, what a sad bunch of nitpickers these people are. When they confront Jesus over what they consider to be a Sabbath breach on his part, they get a whole lot more than they were expecting. Have a look. Verse 17, chapter 5. Jesus' Jesus's first point is an issue to do with the Sabbath and an issue to do with who he is. Look at what he says, verse 17. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, do you see what he's saying here? God hasn't stopped working since the creation of the world, is what he's saying, and the religious leaders would have been well aware of that. It's God who sustains the world every single day. The next breath that you draw is only possible because God allows it. And God is at work on the Sabbath to allow all of those things. And Jesus is saying, well, my father and I will continue to work on the Sabbath if it's all the same to you. And the religious leaders understand exactly what he's saying. They are, it's not lost on them because have a look at what it says in verse 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. They might be nitpickers, but they're not stupid. They can see what Jesus is saying. And from verse 19 to the end of the chapter, Jesus gives a detailed response to exactly what it is that they are thinking. He is establishing the fact that he is God. And I just want to highlight two points that Jesus makes in this section. Firstly, Jesus says that he is the life giver. His life giving father has enabled him to have the ability to give life. Have a look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whomever he is pleased to give it. And in case that's not explicit enough, jump down to verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears these words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus is God and Jesus is the one who can give life, eternal life. And that's exactly what was illustrated in this miracle, that first one, where the man comes about his son. All he gets from Jesus is words. He doesn't see anything happen. He just has Jesus' word. And the man took Jesus at his word. And Jesus now says that eternal life is about taking me at my word. If you believe Jesus, if you take him at his word, then you have eternal life. 
I think the most stunning thing in this chapter is the way that the religious leaders want to judge Jesus. They try and hold up the law and think that they can dismiss him as just being a lawbreaker. I mean, he's the one who is God. He was there before the creation of the world. And they're going to try and judge him. Not by laws that God has given, but by a bunch of rules that they've made up about what you can and can't do with your mat on Saturdays. Just seems like a pathetic joke, doesn't it? But look at what it says. Look at what Jesus says, verse 26. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Jesus turns the tables on them and he uses scripture to do it. They think they're taking God seriously and he wants to show them that they're not even listening. Verse 37, look at what Jesus says. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. This is a pretty stinging rebuke to the religious leaders. I mean, people who who have this proud history of being God's people, the ones to whom God spoke. And Jesus says, you've never even heard God's voice. You wouldn't even know what it sounded like. And it certainly doesn't dwell in you. And then he follows with this devastating critique in verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus doesn't invite them to believe. He stands in front of them, claims that he is God and then dares them to believe in him. Taking Jesus at his word. I think that's what sums up this whole section of John's Gospel. And can I say the implications are just as real for us today as they were standing in that temple 2,000 years ago. We need to be people who take Jesus at his word. Do we take him at his word when it comes to salvation? Listen again to what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. How are you saved? How are you made right with God? How do you receive eternal life? By taking Jesus at his word. By believing him. That may sound easy, but there's a lot of us who struggle with that because it kind of sounds a bit too easy. But we need to be completely convinced that eternal life comes because of Jesus and not because of anything that we've done, except that we've stopped trusting ourselves and started taking Jesus at his word. Now, it may seem like this kind of comes up pretty regularly in sermons here at Campbell Street, but I think it's because that's the message that keeps coming up regularly in the Bible. 
And it's sadly a message that we kind of keep half believing. We keep thinking that it's probably also helpful if we can just do a few things to earn God's favour. I mean, it's great, Jesus has done all that for us, but a little bit of work on our part, surely that's got to count for something, you know, me and Jesus, we've, we've got me saved. Well, what God wants us to do is to take Jesus at his word and know that our salvation comes only because of him. But there is a part that follows on from that. We need to keep taking Jesus at his word. We need to keep listening to what his word says. So how do we do that? How do we hear his voice? Well, you've got John's gospel open right there in front of you. You don't have to go too far to find it. We need to be serious about reading the Bible, serious about understanding it better. And importantly, we need to be serious about applying it in our own lives. Still amazes me that the religious leaders in Jesus' day, who would have known God's word quite well, they know it inside and out, but they still don't let it shape their thinking. They knew that God was gracious and compassionate, but that led them to be a bunch of legalistic nitpickers. They knew that God was going to send his son, but even when Jesus is standing right in front of them, they don't recognise him. They think they know God's word, so they criticise Jesus for working on the Sabbath. But they have no problem with plotting to kill Jesus when they find him a little distasteful. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting for a moment that I'm any better than those religious leaders. In fact, I'm just like those religious leaders. But what I'm saying is that we need to be careful that we don't make the same mistakes that they do. Don't just claim to listen to what Jesus said. Listen to what he said and let it change you, shape you, impact you, influence your behaviour. It's easy for Christians to feel like they know what God's word says, but then they can still end up living in a way that's quite contrary to what God's word says. It can be in the areas of money or sex and relationships or when it comes to forgiveness. We're incredibly fortunate to live in a country where good Bible teaching is readily available. We live in a time in history when it's accessible on the internet. You can find some great preachers who will challenge us from what God's word says. We have Bible study groups here at church where you can share together and encourage each other in your faith. There are also lots of other voices out there that want to seek to shape our thinking and our attitudes and our values. And we need to be people who take Jesus at his word. We need to let his word shape our thinking and our lives. We need to be people who diligently study the scriptures and hear the voice of Jesus clearly coming through. We need to take him at his word And then we need to live like we take him at his word.